Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 34, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I am Rick, again. I'm author of the just-released God Who Fights For You book. You can find that on Amazon. And also, last year's Spiritual Grit and its two devotional companions. And important for today's episode, The Jesus-Centered Life, uh, three or four years ago. Uh, this podcast sort of spawned out of that book. And uh, we're going to do something very, very much connected to that book, probably, believe it or not, for the rest of the year. Like, I know it's almost, almost September right now, so it doesn't feel like the end of the year is anywhere near close, but it's going to come faster than you think. And we're going to start a series today that I think will last to the end of the, in, end of the year. It's a first episode in this series that we're calling the Beeline Practices. And it's uh, something, again, that I've lifted out of the Jesus-Centered Life book. Basically, the back two-thirds of that book is called The Beeline Practices. And it's, it's uh, almost, eight, almost 20 sort of everyday practices that draw us into closer and closer orbit around Jesus in our life. And the, the beeline of beeline practices comes from C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who is the great Victorian uh, uh, preacher in London, who was at one time the most known person in the world. He's still the most published pastor in history. And Spurgeon had a kind of a motto that he lived his life by and that infiltrated every sermon he ever gave. He called it making a beeline to Jesus. That meant that no matter where you start, no matter what the topic is, no matter where you were in scripture, you always find your way to Jesus. And the example he gave is that if you're in England, every little road and, and uh, alleyway eventually spills out into a main road, which eventually all of those roads lead to London in, in England. And he said, I approach life and uh, preaching and um, even training young pastors the same way that you start wherever you start, but you find your way to Jesus in the end. So beeline practices are practices in our life that uh, help us find the path to Jesus, no matter where we start from, so that our life orbits around him. So these are not new ways to try harder to be better, by the way. They're simply habits that almost like you show up at the playground and there's all these different playground equipments there. And, and you really, really like the slide, but you don't like the swings. So you head over to the slide and you play on the slide for a while. That's what we're going to explore in these beeline practices. Some of these you're going to love. Some of them you're going you're to say, well, I don't know if that's so much me. Um, but the idea is to just choose from this menu of options from now to the end of the year for ways, habits in your life that will help you, your life to orbit around Jesus in the end. So Jesus is a relational artist, and these are all strategies that he used to, to quote unquote, draw all people to himself. So he did these things himself to try to establish greater intimacy with people, and he's inviting us to do these things as well. So the fall represents sort of a new beginning for us, and I think this is a good time for us to dive into the beeline practices. In this first episode, 
we're going to focus on this, acting on our trust, acting on our trust. That's a beeline practice. So, of course, we have the Becky Nader joining me today on this excursion into the heart of Jesus. Hi, Becky. Hello. Said that in her own Becky Nader way. Becky, do you, uh, the, for new listeners who don't understand why I call you the Becky Nader, um, I think they must understand why I call you the Becky Nader. I could say it, but why don't you say it? Why, why do I call you the Becky Nader? And why was that an issue for some people early on when I started calling you the Becky Nader? So he calls me the Becky Nader because I have an innate ability to take something and put a surge of energy behind it and move it quickly in the right direction. Um, yes, that is exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. It's like an inertia. But some people thought that like what Rick meant was It's not inertia. It, inertia is what you is what you're a catalyst against. You right. come up, you come up against inertia and the inertia goes away. Movement true. happens. So Movement happens. <laughs> some people thought that Rick was calling me that because he thought like I was his like assistant or something. Like Oh my gosh. <laughs> some people didn't like it. But you know what's funny is I actually have this um the Becky Nader um, in my like bio, when I um, pitch for, to clients um, for an interview, and I actually will get responses now that it, that will say, "Hi, Becky Nader." <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And you know, um, I I once used to watch the kids' show Phineas and Ferb all the time because my youngest daughter loved that show, and I, not so secretly, also love that show. Um, it's, it's maybe my favorite cartoon show ever. And the evil Dr. Doofenshmirtz, who is in that show, every episode he was creating a new innator. So he had some new contraption he was creating that was supposed to uh, 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 win for him the, uh, all power in the world. And he called each of his new contraptions, whatever it was called, it always had innator at the end, which meant that that thing did something. And boy, does Becky do things. Uh, that, that describes her. So, so uh, acting on our trust is the focus today. So trust we know is central to all of our relationships. It's, it's also the, the, the primary catalyst in our relationship with Jesus. But here's the problem, we're broken people and the place of our brokenness is usually what I call our fundamental trust. Uh, so here, here's a story, I want Becky you to think of uh, maybe your own example of what a, a break in fundamental trust is. But my favorite story, it's so simple. I was at a, my kids VBS one year and, you know, VBS has little kids all the way up to usually sixth or seventh graders. And I, uh, they were all in this big area and there was a balcony surrounding them. And there was adults at one point who were in, in the middle of this kind of celebration time. They started to throw these big balloons into the air so they would kind of drift down and fall amongst the kids. And I was watching this one little girl. She was just dancing and having a great time celebrating. And then from above her, she never expected this to happen. So she didn't even know there were adults in the balcony, but all of a sudden from above her, one of these enormous balloons lands on her head. Now it didn't hurt her, but it really startled her. And immediately she's, her whole countenance changes and she's looking around and she's, she's putting her hands up and she has this worried look on her face. And she had that look on her face the rest of the time. That's a break in fundamental trust when you're innocently enjoying yourself and then out of nowhere, a massive balloon hits you in the head and you think, how did that happen? I never saw it coming. And now I don't trust the sky anymore. What else could fall on me? 
is basically what that little girl was saying. And if you think about how that's lived out with us from when we're children into adults, we have many, many, we don't have sometimes balloons landing on our head. We have anvils landing on our head. And then we get cautious and afraid and um, we don't know what's coming next. We, we no longer trust, quote unquote, the universe to be benign. All of a sudden we think, hey, we could be assaulted at any moment. When you think about a break in fundamental trust, Becky, what do you think of? Well, obviously I, I experienced an extreme break in fundamental trust. And, you know, now I'm in a new relationship. And when I think about myself before. Oh, we got to stop there. So just for anybody who's listening for the first time, maybe explain what, what do you mean by that? A break in fundamental trust for you. Well, I mean, I was married for eight years and then I woke up one day and found out that my life was totally different than what I thought. My husband had been hiding a ton of big giant secrets um, that ranged from illegal activity to adulterous activity to uh, drug related activity. And um, it upset and upended and displaced my entire life. And um, before that, like, I was never a really, like, cautious person in relationships. I was always very trusting. I never had, like, jealousy, it, like, issues that I dealt with. I just kind of was very carefree about it. Um, and now I've been in a new relationship for about a year and a half. And, um, and I hate how different I am now. Um, mm. There's no need or reason for me to have, like, you know, kind of like my alarm bells up or like be waiting, um, you know, anticipating like what's going to happen next. But my, um, my cadence is just there. Like I, I naturally like have my guard up and it's, it's, it's terrible because it, it's, I don't know if that will ever go away with time. Um, but there's this part of me that's like, like wholly still protecting like the other shoe from dropping, even though there's no actual reason for for that to, to be something that I need to do. Yeah, and we've talked often on the podcast that the central mission of Jesus in our lives is to set captives free. And there's no greater captivity than our broken trust. It, it, and for the very reasons you're saying right now, Becky, that when your trust is broken in a sort of a fundamental way, um, it's hard then to attach in a more intimate way in your relationships. This, you can see the insidious, strategy and impact of the enemy of God in this, that if he can destroy our trust, he can keep us from ever having an intimate relationship with others and with Jesus. And so Jesus's mission is to, against all odds in a miraculous way, restore our fundamental trust in him. And we talk a lot in the, in, on the podcast that to trust someone first means to taste and see their heart to see their heart for what it is, and in the case of Jesus, to see how he defines goodness. When we taste and see Jesus' heart, we see goodness in his heart. And that's why he wants us so much to pay attention to his heart. Um, and that's why he's so upset when we act as though we don't understand his heart. He was very upset at different times throughout the four Gospels when people who claimed to believe in him and understand his heart acted as though they didn't. Um, he is very focused on us understanding how good his heart is and to not misconstrue that, especially since we've had catastrophic things that have happened to us. And sometimes we ascribe that to, to God, that he's responsible for it. 
So, and then that insidiousness then creeps into our inability to relate to God in a more intimate way. So this, I think this restoration project that Jesus is on um, has two prongs. The first one I just mentioned, that he wants to invite us to slow down, taste, and savor his heart so that we begin to, to have a deeper sense of what his heart's really like. That's the first thing, but we can't stop there because the thing that Jesus really didn't like was when people didn't act on that trust. So the, there's the two prongs. We know his heart, and then we act on what we've experienced in his heart. Becky, how, do you, how have you seen these two prongs sort of working in your life, tasting the heart of Jesus and then acting on that experience of his heart, trusting that heart? Trust means acting on it. How have you, how have you seen this, especially in this season of your life where the, your whole apple cart has been upset? Uh, how, do, how do these two things work together for you? I think that the heart of Jesus is that I know with certainty that there's a plan for me um, that is um, full of opportunity, that is a safe place for me to be, that he has a way to carry me past all of this, and that, that for me to even um, gain back more than I lost. Mm. And I, I believe that to be true. And so even though, like, I don't feel like it sometimes, <laughs> or I'm scared, or I'm afraid that, well, what if this just ends up happening again? Or what if something worse happens? Um, I just continually decide that I'm going to trust that he has a great life for me. And I continue to just live that. Um, and I, I know even just me starting to date again was shocking to some people. They were like, oh my gosh, like, what if she gets hurt again? I don't know if we could go through that and could she handle it? Um, and so, but, but for me, it was like, but no, I know that, I know that God has a plan for me to move forward. And so that means I have to act out and trust, even when maybe it doesn't seem like it's, you know, it's too soon or maybe I should wait. Um, but it's been, it's been good for me to just act on putting my life back together um, and continuing to act continually actively pursuing that um that posture rather than just kind of like staying in the wallow or or yeah. making excuses for not moving forward and and you could sit there and say oh, i believe in jesus i trust his heart but we all know you know that then if we refuse to act on that if we refuse to to act as though what we're saying is really true that it's hollow and it's fragile and, and the problem with that is that it takes tremendous courage to act on it when you don't experience right now in that moment the truth of it. I was just leading a group of people through a 45-minute experience of Jesus this morning, and I'm tired, and um, I was a little distracted this morning, and it takes a lot of intentionality to lead in the way I do. And I'm in the middle of this. I'm like five or 10 minutes into this. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be a disaster because I'm not dialed in this morning. Um, this is all going to be a disaster. And I, felt, I just felt my tension level and my stress level rising. And I realized, but I'm actually leading them in an activity that's about trusting Jesus' heart right now. <laughs> and so Jesus just kind of poked me almost with a smile on his face is how I imagine it and said, think about what you're saying right now. Take a big, deep breath. Remember, I'm here and I'm for you and trust my heart. Stop trying to make it happen and trust my heart. And it really changed my whole posture. Um, it made me from an adult who was stressed out trying to perform to a little kid again, who is just trusting 
his good Jesus again. It's a massive difference between the two, but it does take courage. And that's why Jesus celebrates courage so much. If you think about the one thing that Jesus loved the most in people, it was their courage. He absolutely was arrested by it, loved it, pointed it out, wanted to spotlight it. It's because he knows that our fundamental break in trust, when we do trust, it's miraculous. It's an amazing fruit of our relationship with him. And I love what you said there, Becky, that, that his promise in your life is to gain back more than you lost. What a stunning thing to put your heart and mind around, that you might gain back more than you lost. Talk about having a lot on the line with that kind of trust belief. Wow, is it really possible that I would gain back more than I lost? What I lost is too much. Um, but to actually begin to trust Jesus that that could be true, the only way to do that is to first experience how good his heart is. And then, like you just said, start to step out in it. But, you know, Rick, um, a lot of people will get tied up in waiting for Jesus to give them an exact plan with exact miraculous signs that the plan is going to work Yeah. Um, in order to move forward. And when, when we were talking about, um, about trusting Jesus, we oftentimes want to say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. You know, I could have very easily been like, well, I don't know. I guess he needs to, to like put on a fireworks show, follow in that fireworks show. He needs to spell out in letters that I'm going to move to Oregon um, that that's the right choice for me. And then if he does that, then I'll move to Oregon. <laughs> um, but that's not how it works at all. But the, the only thing that I know what to do is to put one foot in front of the other and to say, okay, I, I feel like this is the right path. I don't, I don't see any opposition to it. I'm going to go. And I, I see a lot of people that get stuck. They, mm. they, they know that, that God has a plan for them. They know that it's been promised to them and they are absolutely refusing to move forward because they need it spelled out in lights. And part of what Jesus would get frustrated with when he when people so desperately needed him to continuously prove who he was with these very miraculous um, physical aspects and he was just like, do I have to keep doing this? Don't you know yet who I am? Um, we do the same things in our lives when we just continually don't move forward and we, you know, we, we don't, we just stay stuck, even though we, we know he's asked us to move forward. Yeah, I love what the example you just made too, that when, when the people kept asking him to perform another miracle and the next miracle, Jesus is smart. He knows there, this will never end. They want, they say, if you just do one more miracle, Jesus, then we'll believe. But he knows how human beings work. He knows that if that's the standard you're using, it will never be enough. You will always need one more thing. I was thinking as you were talking about this, what you're really describing is we're only willing sometimes to trust after the fact. Once the thing is over, we're willing to look back and say, well, now I trust you. But Jesus understands that is such a fragile trust. It is not going to survive the next hard thing or the next challenging thing that happens to you. The only way to, to develop that kind of trust, when you say that gain back from what I lost, you're really, when you say this, this is part of his plan or his promise to you, another way to say plan and promise is this is how good his heart is toward me. This is how much affection he has toward me. This is how many dreams and hopes he has for me. This is how he's intending 
to like an artist work in the chaos of my life to move me in this direction. That's his quote unquote plan. It's more about his essence and his lean and his posture toward us than it is a plan that you write out with bullet points. It's I intend to move in your life in this direction. Give me some raw material. And part of that raw material is acting on our trust. Just a couple of quick things about uh, references. You, you referenced um, that the people wanted more miracles. And uh, at the end of that, there, there's a particular time when the people said, well, well, we'll trust you if you do one more thing. And they said, well, we really do believe Jesus, but if you could just do this one more thing. And it says right after that, well, Jesus understood men's hearts. And they were, try, they were trying to trust him, but he, but he didn't trust them. And the reason he didn't trust them is because they were trusting in circumstantial sorts of markers. They wanted him to do something else that was circumstantial in order to trust. And Jesus recognized that that's not really trust. And in Matthew 17, that his disciples can't get rid of a demon that a man brings to them. And so they all come to Jesus and they say, hey, the, I gave my son to your, your disciples and they couldn't kick the demon out. And Jesus gets angry. And the, the, it's important to understand what he was angry at there. You know, what he was angry at is that they, they didn't believe. What, they, what he means is, you guys, you say that you understand that I'm the Messiah and I have authority, but you don't act like it. If you acted like it, you would know, I have complete authority over the demonic world. And you'd be relaxed about kicking that demon out of there. Instead, you put it on yourselves. You tried to muscle that demon out of there instead of simply trusting my authority and using my authority to kick that demon out. You still don't get who I really am. You still don't really trust who I am. Uh, it, it, constantly, people were putting their trust in Jesus because of his performance. The biggest example maybe of that, and poor Thomas gets hammered for this, but after the resurrection, Thomas said, I didn't, I'm not going to believe that he's really resurrected until I can see it with my own eyes. And so Jesus appears amongst the disciples and Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds in his hands and in his side. And then he says, um, I'm happy to do this, Thomas, but blessed are the people that didn't need what you just had, what you just got. What he was saying is, uh, people who are really blessed are those who trust Jesus's heart and trust the truth about what he had been saying, that he really was going to leave the tomb after three days instead of requiring the evidence for it. So, so he does, he does come back to this rather often. So if, if uh, now we're going to dive into this, this beeline practice that will help us in this process of restoring this fundamental trust. I thought it would be good to begin with a little story here. This is a fable that um, first appeared in a comic uh, in 1936. It's a fable called The Mouse and the Elephant. So I'm going to tell the fable, and then, Becky, I want you to, uh, you and I to kind of uh, uh, dig out what the meaning of this fable is. So here's how it goes. One day, a great big elephant and an itsy-bitsy mouse went for a walk. They admired the flowers and birds all along the way, and soon they came to a bridge. And as they crossed the brook, the bridge trembled and shook under the weight of the elephant. Gosh, squeaked the mouse when they were on the other side of the stream. Didn't we make that bridge shake? So Becky, uh, it's a very simple, short fable. What do you think uh, the, the meaning buried in this fable is? How does it, how does it hit you? It's probably so how Jesus sees our our day-to-day -day life like we take so much credit for the stuff 
<laughs> like I just see him up in heaven, like exactly, exactly. This is what I'm talking about, people. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, so true. I, I love the way you said that. We take so much credit for things that happen. We it's take so, true. so much credit. We're like, we, and we just, you know, when things are going great and it's like, oh, we made it through this or we, you know, we muscled our energy to like get these projects done and get our kids out the door and like, and Jesus is just like the one clearing the path, like running around, making it all happen for us. But we take so much credit. And, and we're like very impressed with how, how much the bridge shakes, right? Yeah. And, but here's, here's a, a nuance of this fable too. It's not that the mouse weighs nothing. It's not that the mouse has no weight to him. He does. The point of the fable is that there's something much larger that is causing the bridge to really shake the way it does. So it's not that the mouse is unimportant. Well, and the mouse story. still walked across. Yeah, the mouse still went. Like, it's not like the mouse stayed on the other side and didn't walk across the bridge. Like, he was there. He had, he had a role to play. It's just... Yeah, he did do something. He just didn't shake the freaking bridge the way he thought he, the way he, thought he did. Yeah. And I, I, I was reminded with this fable of something I love. I was interviewing John Eldridge, who wrote Wild at Heart and many other fantastic books. Um, I was reminded of uh, one of the interviews I've done with him where he said something that I, I think will never leave me. He said his greatest temptation in life is to make things happen instead of trusting Jesus. And isn't that so true with, with uh, when, I, when I say you're the Beckinator, and you, and you do make things happen. And we gravitate to people who make things happen, right? We follow leaders who make things happen. But then there's this insidious temptation that where we cross over and we, and we think inside, it's my job to make things happen. It's, my, it's in my capacity to make things happen. I'm not a mouse, I'm the elephant. I'm the elephant shaking the bridge. It's very easy to make that transition and for a, a person who's in ministry leadership like John Eldridge, it's like rampant. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was just outing something that lots of people feel that, that and I think it's, it's maybe the greatest temptation of humanity to make things happen instead of trusting Jesus. It's the thing that in the Old Testament was pointed out continuously that the people of God would trust God for a while and then they'd revert back to trusting themselves. They, they, they lost sight that they were the mouse, not the elephant in the end. So Becky, how do, how do you see this tension show up in your life, this t tension between making things happen and trusting Jesus, especially because you have this like thriving business now where you've got a lot going on. How do you live out this tension of I'm making this, making this happen and yet I'm also trusting Jesus? Where does that tension show up in your life? I think that I have to be like constantly reminded of it. Um, it. It's interesting because I am the kind of person who can get a lot done and I'm extremely exacting and, um, and successful at doing that. One of the things that is challenging is that I will get so busy doing that I'll forget to lean back in to where I need to lean back into. And just a, a week ago, I was thinking about how things have gotten a little bit harder lately. And I was trying to figure out like, well, why have they gotten harder? You've got all these great new systems in place. You've made so much progress in your, you know, automation campaigns and your project management systems. And I kind of looked backwards to a time where things were kind of flowing naturally. And I realized exactly where the problem was. <laughs> I was completely dependent and it was because 
at that point, I was still very scared out of my mind about where my next paycheck was going to come from and feeling that tension of just having to rely on the Lord. And I looked back and I was like, well, even though that seemed scarier, I was was so reliant that things were actually flowing easier. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had to get to a point where I realized, yeah, when you are totally dependent on Jesus and you take a step back, it doesn't matter how many systems and processes you have going and how much, how good things are going for you. Essentially, um, it's that dependence that was making things flow, even though things felt scarier at that time. Um, they, everything was flowing more naturally and I had more energy and more time. And, um, it was because I was just, I was attaching to the vine the way I should. So I have to, I have to come back to that consistently. And I think when you are a person of action, it's a lot easier for you to fall into this trap. Um, when you're capable of getting a lot done on your own, it's, it's very easy to think that you can do it all yourself. So then the question is, um, what does it actually mean in a practical way to act on our trust of Jesus, knowing that we're the mouse, he's the elephant, but we are still required to get on the bridge and we still have weight on the bridge. It's affecting the bridge. But what does it mean for us to act on our trust of him at, at that point? I think the answer is locked up in a natural metaphor. It's called Bernoulli's principle. It's a principle of physics that is very old. And it's the essential thing is, uh, we just did this the other night with our group of 20 teenagers where I had them, uh, I got a bunch of these um, plastic tube bags from the grocery store, the ones that you put ears of corn in, so they're pretty long. And uh, I had them first try to blow into the end of the tube by putting the end of that tube around their mouth. So they had to blow it up and they had to time how long it would take them to blow up the tube. Then they, they timed it. We had a stopwatch going. And then we, I said, get all the air out of it, flatten it, and now open it in front of you. Just open the, the, the opening of the tube in front of you and put it about 10 inches away from your face and just blow, one big blow, like that, in front of you. And the tube fills up immediately, and they closed it off. So it took, on average, about 30 seconds for them to blow up the balloon just using their lung power. But when they held the tube out 10 inches in front of them and opened it and just blew in its direction, it filled up immediately. Well, that's an example of Bernoulli's principle. What it means is that uh, it's the same reason why an airplane can lift off the ground and get to 30,000 feet. The way the wing is shaped creates low pressure underneath the wing, uh, creates low pressure on the top of the wing and high pressure on the underside of the wing. I hope I'm saying that right. But it's a pressure differential that automatically lifts the plane. Even, even a heavy, you know, a hundred ton plane, it lifts it off the ground into the air. The same is true when you blow into a bag like that. When you blow air toward it, you're speeding up the air molecules, which lowers the pressure inside that bag. And the low pressure then magnetizes more air and forces more air into the bag because it's low pressure. So a tiny thing that you do, holding it away from you, leads to a big catalytic reaction filling up the tube with air. It's a, I think it's a, a great picture of what it means to act on our trust. We do a little thing, but we do a little thing in a certain way. One, one of the kids that night when we were processing this said, well, putting the bag up to your face is like maintaining control. Like it's all going to come from me. All of the air in the bag is going to fill up from my lungs. 
But when we put it away from us, we have to risk that by just blowing in front of us, it's going to fill that bag up. And what we're risking is that our breath is going to catalyze a huge volume of air to all of a sudden just rush into that bag and fill it up. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to take a, to think about Bernelli's principle relative to a couple of stories, a couple of encounters Jesus has with people where I think this whole idea of what it means to act on his trust is in operation. So the first one's in John chapter nine, and it's the story of the man born blind. And just to summarize this, uh, Jesus is walking along and uh, by the side of the road, there's a man born blind and his disciples ask him, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this, this guy or his parents, the, the fact that he was born blind? And Jesus said, uh, neither, none of the above. Ah. <laughs> Both of those answers are wrong. Um, he's, he, and then he does something remarkable. He spits in the ground in the dirt, makes mud, smears it on the man's face. And, uh, and then he says, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So Jesus is telling him to go to this pool that's outside of town now with all this mud smeared on his face. And the next line is, so the man went and washed and came back seeing. And his neighbors and others knew him, who knew him as the blind beggar, asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same one. And they asked, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. And the story goes on from there. It's such a remarkable story. It's so, so unbelievable that he's eventually dragged in front of the the leaders, the religious leaders in the temple who question him about whether Jesus is really the person who did this and also whether he's really the guy that used to be blind because he looks so different now that he can see. And he, this guy engages these religious leaders back and forth and even taunts them a little bit. He starts to get impatient with their constant questions about whether this really happened and whether he really was blind before. He gets them so mad, they, in, they end up throwing him out of the temple, which means that that's like the worst thing that can happen to you when you're a, a Jew. You can't go to the temple anymore. They throw him out because of his sort of attitude about this. So that's the first story. So how, Becky, when you think about Bernelli's principle, the way I described it, where do you see that in operation in this story? He could have done all kinds of things to try and cure his current situation but just by going down and and obeying jesus and washing that mud off of his face he was able to have probably a lifelong <laughs> a lifelong wish um for his life and and a total change in his journey that then catapulted him to this amazing faith and who knows i always i always wonder what happens to these people who had these outrageous encounters like who knows what kind of ministry he went on to um have and what part and role he played even after jesus's death that's good and i love the path you were going down there at the very beginning too the the path of well well what could he have done in this situation because we read these bible stories it's like well this is this is how it had to happen because it's jesus but no it didn't have to happen this way the truth is when Jesus went to this man and put spit mud on his face, that guy could have been offended. Yeah. He could have been like, what do you, who do you think you are? I, I may be a blind beggar, but you can't treat me this way. Now, or he could have, when Jesus said, well, now that you have my spit mud on your eyes, walk through town blind and find your way to the pool of Siloam and wash there. Well, a guy could easily have said, you've got to be kidding me. 
I, I can't get there on my own. I'm blind. I can't go to the pool of Siloam. He could have done, he could have responded lots of ways. The way he responded was, so I got up and I went to the pool of Siloam. So if we think about him being the mouse, well, he got onto the bridge. The, the mouse crossed the brook. One of the kids in our group uh, the other night says, pointed out something about that fable that I'd never thought about before. That little mouse could have drowned in that brook. The elephant's not going to drown. He's too big. But a mouse can drown in the brook. So the mouse going across the bridge is a much bigger deal than the elephant going across the, the bridge, right? But this guy, the little mouse that he is, gets on the bridge and he walks across it. And then it's shaking because the elephant is so heavy. He could have been thrown off the bridge and that would have been the end of him. So this guy, I think similarly, he gets on the bridge. He says, okay, I'm going to go to the pool of Siloam and I'm going to wash there. Think about that. The, the, when we think about acting on trust, we have a broken ceiling fan in our bedroom and I've been trying to, I've ordered a part to fix it. And it's, it's complicated because it's a, a dang ceiling fan and it's heavy to try to reinstall. And I had a buddy come over and help me try to reinstall it. And the first time the uh, a wire was still exposed and it blew. And so we fixed it and we mounted it again and we did everything right the second time. And then it really blew. <laughs> and when I pulled it off of there to find out what had happened, this tiny little wire that I hadn't even seen got crimped inside where we were securing it and it got crimped by metal. So the metal contacted the bare wire and it, it basically blew the motor out. So my friend and I are standing there and I'm thinking, man, what do I do now? And I, he said, do you want us to take it down? And I said, well, I'm not sure it blew the motor. I know it's not working right now, but I can't take this down yet, just emotionally. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe, it, maybe this thing will still work. And he just kind of looked at me like, yeah, are you going to ask Jesus if it's, it, to, to heal your ceiling fan? But I said, well, I mean, that sounds crazy, but I mean, Jesus can do anything. Could he fix my ceiling fan? And so it, it comes down to this, doesn't it, sometimes? Like, is this crazy to believe this? Is it crazy to trust Jesus that he could heal my ceiling fan? It sounds crazy, but this guy, it sounded just as crazy to him to walk through town to the Pool of Siloam and wash there. But he trusted Jesus. When Jesus told him to do it, he did it. And I think that's, again, this is what Jesus celebrates, the act of trust. The second one I thought would be good to look at is Jesus and the centurion. We've talked about this story um, off and on on the podcast, but let's look at it through this lens now, through Brunelli's principle. So um, I'll quickly read this one. This one's from Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, well, I'll come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, and come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from the east and the west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it's happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. So again, Bernelli's principle, Becky, where do you see that operating here in this story? Well, he didn't even need Jesus to go. And <laughs> he men, he's like, we don't have to waste time here. Let's just go ahead and like you send your direction and it'll happen. So, I mean, couldn't be, couldn't be a, a shorter, a shorter, uh, outcome there <laughs> like, and, and you know days traveling or just just get it done i gotta yeah, yeah. <laughs> and ba based on the little bit we know about this centurion what do you think he was thinking as he was walking back home so jesus said your servants healed but we miss the gap of when he has to walk back home and he's just said to jesus no 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 no, no don't come to my house I mean, the most sure way of getting Jesus to heal someone, isn't it, is to make sure he touches the person. And he says no to that. And then he's walking home. What do you think is going through his head? I, I think that he had such great trust that he was like, I can't wait to see my servant. Like, I'm so excited to see him well. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, I don't know that he was really a doubting. He, he, had, he had full confidence that Jesus was going to do what he said. And, the, where, and where do you think that confidence, that certainty comes from? I know we're just guessing here, but just knowing yourself, knowing your own heart, where does that come from? Why did this guy have that based on whatever little clues we have in the story? I think he was just a real logical guy that saw Jesus as having high ranking authority in his spiritual realm. And that he is a man who understood that he also has ranking authority and he just, he didn't need confirmation. He didn't need, he, he was very confident in the fact that Jesus was going to do what he said and that he had the authority to do it. There's at some point, isn't this true, where we become convinced that, that uh, we sort of have gathered enough evidence and then we take this leap over a chasm where we feel like, you know what? I'm convinced. It's the same leap over the chasm I think that Peter took when in John 6, he repeatedly said, eat my body, drink my blood. Everybody leaves. He asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would I go? At that point, Peter is convinced. That's what he's trying to say to Jesus. Look, I, I don't understand everything. And, um, and what you just did makes no sense to me. But I'm now convinced by you. I, I've crossed over that chasm and I'm going down with the ship. And that moment of being convinced is different for every person. And in the case of this centurion guy, he brings up the authority aspect of his, of his being convinced. He, is, he must have studied or uh, paid attention enough to what Jesus had been doing, like you mentioned, Becky, that what he took from that is, hey, this guy has real authority. And, and it, the evidence of that authority is everywhere. I'm now convinced that he, that he is the one who has the authority to do this. So, and I'm, I'm used to operating on authority, so I'm, I'm good. And I'm so good with it, I'm not even going to inconvenience Jesus in this. I think it's an extraordinary story, and Jesus points out how extraordinary it is. Uh, he points it out to Jews who not only couldn't fathom Jesus using a pagan Roman soldier as an example of faith, but that guy has no place in any faith conversation in the first place. 
he's not even be considered in the same category as Jews who will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus then follows it by saying, hey, this guy's going to eat at the table with Abraham. And some Jews won't. They won't even make it. You don't understand the currency of the kingdom of God. This guy does. It is believing in who I am and then acting on it um, out of that trust. And the acting on trust looks different for everybody and in, and in different situations. But um, uh, I, I want to get to, in, the, in closing here, Becky, some ways that we can practice acting on trust. What does that actually look like in our lives? But I think one of the takeaways here is that our lives are really not about outcomes. They're about intimacy. Jesus wants relationship with us more than he demands production from us. So in this tension between making it happen and trusting Jesus, it's important to remember that it's not the production that he's that interested in. It's the relationship that he's interested in. Are we doing this together or are you doing it alone? Um, are you doing it alone and later thanking me for my help even though we didn't do it together? Um, are we doing this together? I, I like to say, and this is in the Jesus-centered life, um, I think this is one of those sentences that people have a hard time reading, but I love it. When I loved it when I wrote it. Jesus' Jesus's invitation to us is not a call from the boss to up our production. It's a call from our lover who wants us to come to bed. Now, that's not me just saying that. That's Jesus over and over again giving us metaphors of intimacy, saying this is what I'm really after. He's not that interested in our production. He wants a love, a love relationship with us. So no matter what we're called to produce, he wants us to be dependent in that process. People who will blow at the bag um, 10 inches away from us uh, and recognizing how little our lung capacity is capable of. If you think about it, Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees and religious leaders was a criticism directed at people who are always putting the bag up to their mouth and trying to blow up the dang bag on their own. And Jesus is trying to, say, trying to say to them, the bag you're trying to blow up extends for miles. You will never be able to blow up the bag on your own. You can keep trying, but you'll never do it unless you take it away from your face and trust to blow, to blow across the gap into the bag and let it fill up because now you've activated something much bigger than you you will never understand what it is to live a righteous life. So uh, it's, it's really too easy to trust ourselves. It's so, it's like a default setting. So what does it look like then to, to be the mouse on the bridge or to blow into the bag from 10 inches away? Um, I think for me, uh, uh, little things like what I did this morning when I'm recognizing the, I, I kind of taking my temperature inside and realizing, wow, I am really anxious. I'm really afraid right now. I'm screwing this up. I, the, the tension is starting to build in me. And then I, I take a break. I take a big, deep breath and I just pause and try to reconnect with Jesus. Jesus, what do you, what do you need to say to me right now? That's literally what I did this morning. Jesus, what do you have to say to me right now? And he playfully pokes me and says, isn't it ironic? You're talking about trust. And right now, you're trying to muscle your way through this. Come on. Come back to the playground. Just play. I got this. Do your thing. Trust me to make it bigger. Maybe that's the, the phrase, the rhythm of it. Do your thing and trust me to make it bigger. Um, 
both of those things are in operation. For you, Becky, what does this look like for you in practicality? How, how do you act on your trust? What, what are ways that, that have been helpful for you to remind yourself to act on your trust and to expect that you're, you're offering something, but, but he's offering something bigger? When my natural call on a really, in a really busy time, when I feel like my, my to-do list is overloaded and my natural inclination is to just put my head down and get as much done as I possibly can. And instead I take an hour to just spend with Jesus and just relax and, and do that as a way. I always end up getting more done after that. Than if I just muscle through it. If I say, oh my gosh, there's 50 things on my to-do list. I could probably only get through 25 and I have to get through 30. I'm still going to do this thing. And when I do, I get done 50. <laughs> it's just, um, it's just that act of dependence that usually makes me so much more productive. And it seems counterproductive. Like, oh, you don't have time for this. You should probably skip it. You should probably yeah. skip So whether that's going for a walk or if it's just, you know, whatever it is, but just a slow down to speed up kind of mentality. Really slow down to speed up. I love that. Slow down to speed up, which is an act of courage in and of itself, isn't it? That is like blowing into the 10 inch gap because when you slow down, it seems like the very thing you shouldn't do right then, right? If I slow down, I'm really going to be screwed here. But so it's an act of faith and trust to slow down first so that you can speed up. Um, I, for me, it's helpful to do things with my body. So when I feel like this tension inside and like I'm trying to muscle my way through, I will like raise my hands. I'll stop and be, get alone somewhere in a bathroom or somewhere else. And I'll literally open my body. I'll raise my hands out so that my body's vulnerable. And I'll just in that posture say, Jesus, I need you. I'm totally dependent on you. And the, the, the physical act of changing my body that way helps me to get to that place where I'm trusting him again. Or sometimes if, if I'm amongst people, I can't go off on my own for a minute. I'll just look up. You know, it's very unobtrusive to just look up as a bodily act of saying, look, I'm dependent on you right now. I'm not just dependent on myself. I have you. I, I, it's, a, it's a reminder to, to blow the 10 inch gap there. Um, another way I think it, it might be helpful um, because we told the fable of the mouse and the elephant is to just remember that fable. And you can say under your breath, say to yourself, I'm the mouse, you're the elephant. I'm the mouse, you're the elephant. Shake the bridge, Jesus. I, I recognize that I'm not the one shaking the bridge. I'm the mouse, you're the elephant. You can just say something like that to yourself to re remind yourself of what it means to act on your trust. When you do, that is an act of courage. And when you act in that courage, Jesus is celebrating what you're doing. Nothing makes him more excited than the hidden acts of courage that we take when no one's watching, when we could be dependent on ourselves, but yet we turn to him. Any last thought about this that pops into your head, Becky, about how you live in a way that acts on trust? Anything else that that was left on the table for you? Just keep doing it. Just get up every day and decide that you're just going to keep believing um, in the promises that he's giving you and, and act on them. And even when people think that you're being <laughs> ridiculous, you know, like when you're the, the guy walking through the, 
you know, walking across town with metal over your face and people are pointing and laughing, like keep going. Um, I think that, yeah, I that happens more often than we think in our lives. I love that image of him walking through town, people laughing at him and inside you say, keep going anyway, keep going anyway, keep going anyway. That is a, it's really an act of worship when we, when we do that to, to, to simply persevere. And one way of funny way of saying it is act as though Jesus is as good as you've experienced him. Act like it, like he is that good. Act like the promises he's spoken over you are actually true. Act as if they are, even if it feels hard to believe them at some point. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, you can check out um, uh, our website, payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com, for links to everything we've talked about today. You're looking for season four, episode 34. Can you believe it? We're like, you know, something like almost two-thirds of the way through our fourth season here. So uh, check it out, season four, episode 34, for more links. You can also find links to the Jesus Centered Bible. If you haven't yet snagged one of those, please do. It still remains one of the most popular Bibles in the world because so many people have found it helpful to draw them into a greater orbit and intimacy with Jesus because of the special features in that Bible. So please check that out. You can also find the Jesus-Centered Life there. If you want to dive into the Beeline practices as we are doing this series from now to the end of the year, that's an excellent way. It's an excellent companion for it. Um, and in a couple of weeks, Becky will be back on the podcast next week. I'll probably fly solo. Uh, but we'll have, a, a, like I said before, 18 or 20 of these Beeline practices that we'll get to explore between now and the end of the year. I can't wait to do it with you. So, again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time, Becky, in two weeks.